So good to be here. It's been a blessing already, the fellowship and getting to connect with so many of you. Grateful to bring the word of God to you. And even as you applaud there, I know that as you do that, you are, if anything, applauding Christ in me. And I'm not yet all that I ought to be, but I'm not what I once was. And the Lord is still working on me and I want them to be evident in my life, and so I'm grateful for all of your support. And I'm eager to bring to you the Word of God. And I want to go to a text that I think we need to claim as ours. It is the quintessential text on spiritual warfare. And so we need to be in this portion of Scripture and be able to demonstrate how it speaks to everything that we've already been discussing so far in our time together. And so open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. And you can just call this sermon the church at war. The church at war. Let's read it together. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I think it would be fair to say that much of the evangelical church is ill-equipped for this historical moment. And that's because it fails to understand both the substance and scope of the spiritual battle. Though it's true that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And though it's true that we're engaged in a spiritual war, the war isn't merely limited to either a personal struggle with Satan or the realm of false religion. That kind of thinking reflects yet another woefully deficient view of the teaching of Scripture. Satan is at work in every sphere of human life. He's at work in the health system. He's at work in the educational system. He's at work in the academy or academia. He's at work in the media. He's at work in the entertainment industry. He's at work in law enforcement. He's at work in the judicial system. He's at work in politics. And he is most definitely at work in government. In fact, government is one of the chief spheres of Satan's operation and has been since its inception in Genesis. And not only is that evident throughout both biblical and secular history, but even Antichrist himself is depicted as one who emerges from within government. And if that's true, we should expect to see the spirit of Antichrist already at work in government. And we certainly see it alive and well in our government not only because it implicitly denies that Jesus is the Christ, 1 John 2, 22, but also because it has usurped his authority. It has redefined marriage. It has redefined sexuality. It has redefined murder. It has redefined gender. And has done so effectively making itself out to be God by redefining creational norms. Beyond that, it has attempted to dictate to the church the terms of worship, attempting to assert itself as the head of the church. 
And if that weren't enough, it has even now essentially outlawed the gospel by outlawing conversion, leveling a direct attack on the Great Commission itself. Our government is both intensely and increasingly religious, and it consistently legislates against the truth and therefore is an antichrist government. So if the church is to view the government as a good and benevolent king completely removed from the operation of Satan, then the spiritual war is already lost. She will continue to retreat and yield up ground to the enemy and will fail to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And it's with that that we come to Ephesians 6 to ensure that we grasp both the substance and scope of the spiritual war so that we would do what? Stand firm. Stand firm. Now, as we come to this text, it's worth noting the literary context that we find it in. Broadly speaking, many of you know the epistle to the Ephesians is broken up into two halves. The first half dealing with doctrine, the second half with duty. The first with creed, the second with conduct. The first with orthodoxy, the second with orthopraxy. And so we're in the portion of this epistle that applies the theology and doctrine of the first half and applies it to practical Christian living. And then within that section, we're at the conclusion. This is the climax of this epistle. And so our response to the exhortations of these verses is critical to our execution of the mission given to us, to our faithfulness. And the overarching thrust of these verses is that we would stand firm. The call to stand firm is expressed no less than three times in these verses. You see it there in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see it there in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And you see it there again in verse 14 where it's an imperative, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And so this is all about standing firm. This is all about being immovable, unshakable, steadfast. And so we're going to frame the whole discussion around that theme. And we're going to see the power to stand firm, the prerequisite to stand firm, and then the panoply to stand firm. And as we apply it, we aren't going to apply it to our lives personally and individually. We're going to apply it to the broader evangelical church and let this text speak to the church universal. And by church, I mean the true, regenerate, living, believing, invisible church. I'm not speaking to the professing church. I am speaking to the confessing church. That which consists of the true blood-bought body of Jesus Christ. And so if you're taking notes, jot this down. The power to stand firm. The power to stand firm. Look at verse 10. It begins finally, in conclusion, last but certainly not least, and then a command, be strong in the Lord. This is calling us to be strong, and this call to be strong is addressed to the entire Ephesian church and by extension to the universal church and therefore to us. This is a call to be strong, and it's an imperative, calling on us to ever and always be strong in the present tense. And yet the strength that we're to be strong with is not our own. This command is expressed in the passive voice. And so this is a strength that comes to us as we're acted upon by another. And the source of this strength is who? The Lord Jesus Christ since it says that we're to be strong in the Lord, where in depicts our union with Christ. 
calling on us to live in such vital union with him that the flow of his strength is unobstructed. And that Christ is the source of this strength is further emphasized in the last half of verse 10 where it says, and in the strength of his might. Some translations say the strength of his power. Others say the power of his might. Still others say the might of his power. But either way, the idea is that we would be strong in the inherent strength of the might of Christ. And the theme of this strength is expressed in multiple times, multiple places throughout this epistle. And so look at chapter 1 for a moment. Because in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians in chapter 1 and verse 18 and following, this theme of strength is expressed. There Paul prays, Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, same words, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus has been raised up and seated above all rule and authority. And the very power that raised him to that place is toward us who believe. The very same power that seated Christ far above all rule and authority is toward us. This theme comes up again in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 14 and following. where he prays this or expresses this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So not only is this a strength that strengthens us in the inner man, but it is also a strength that finds its source in each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul then further accentuates this power in the benediction of verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3, when he writes this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And we all said, Amen. So this is a power that surpasses all comprehension, making this a profoundly phenomenal power. It rose Jesus from the grave, seated him at the Father's right hand, finds its source in the triune God, and is beyond our comprehension. And God is calling on us to be strong in it. And this strength is critical to standing firm. So how is the church to do this? How is it to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? Well, we get a hint from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, where we see the exact same command expressed. There Paul exhorts Timothy, saying, You therefore, my son, be strong... In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Where grace refers to enabling grace or empowering grace that finds its source in Christ Jesus. And so we need to be on the receiving end 
of the enabling grace of Christ. And I'm going to give you three ways that the church is to lay hold of this grace. Three ways to be on the receiving end of this grace. One, the church needs to humble herself. The church needs to humble herself. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to who? The humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. And so congregations need to scan themselves for any and all expressions of pride, a lack of submissiveness to the word of God, the desire to be esteemed by the world, an attitude or disposition of superiority, which you see, for example, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, self-reliance, self-preservation, or even selfish ambition, the church needs to repent of any and all pride and humble herself under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 6. Pride will inevitably obstruct the flow of the strength of Christ into the life of the church. Two, the church needs to repent of her sin. The church needs to repent of her sin. I think if we had God's vantage point and could peer into the lives represented by the church, I think we would see that she is steeped in sin. That sin is being permitted to reign in her. And without a doubt, sin short-circuits the flow of God's enabling grace. It effectively quenches it. And so there needs to be a wholesale turning from sin and returning to God. There needs to be a wholesale turning from sin. There needs to be repentance, an honest and prayerful confession and repudiation of the sin that's in the life of the church and is obstructing the flow of the grace of Christ. Sin like lying, gossip, slander, all expressions of sexual immorality, all expressions of idolatry, materialism, greed, comfort. How about idleness, prayerlessness, as we heard, the fear of man, heartless worship, worldliness. The church needs to repent of her sin. She's weak because she's steeped in sin. And so there needs to be repentance. If the church is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, then she needs to repent and must then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And three, the church needs to make diligent use of the means of grace. The church needs to make diligent use of the means of grace. What, what does the means of grace refer to? It refers to the spiritual disciplines that channel God's enabling grace into our lives. You see, though the call to be strong is a passive imperative indicating that we are only going to be strong as we're acted upon by another, it nevertheless demands action on our part. We must be active in receiving the strength of Christ. And the action demanded of us is to make diligent use of the spiritual activities that channel God's enabling grace into our lives. The nourishment of the word of God. The communion of prayer. The communion of the saints, fellowship, and the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. And I submit to you this, that all of the means of grace are most fully operative in the corporate gathering when the church gathers on the Lord's day. And part of the reason for that is because preaching is the primary means of grace. God has ordained it that it would be through the preaching of his word that the church would be built up. And so the church needs to prioritize the corporate gathering and come together to come under the means of grace to be strengthened in the grace of Christ. 
There needs to be a renewed commitment to the in-person corporate gathering. And there needs to be a renewed commitment to the clear, precise, robust, and spirit-empowered preaching of the word of God. The church is at war. She is in a spiritual war against a formidable foe. And if she's going to stand firm, then she needs to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Again, demanding that she humble herself, repent of her sin, and make diligent use of the means of grace. Now, second, the prerequisite to stand firm. The prerequisite to stand firm. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The prerequisite to standing firm is putting on the full armor of God. And there's definitely a relationship between the, the command to be strong in the Lord and the, the putting on of this armor. And that means there's a relationship between putting on this armor and the means of grace. And I think you'll see that as we identify each piece of the armor. But the command here is to put on the full armor of God. The Greek word there rendered full armor is panoplia, from which we get our English word panoply. In a literal sense, the panoply refers to the complete equipment of a heavy-armed soldier. And yet here, obviously, it is being used metaphorically because this is the armor of God, indicating that it originates with God and is of a spiritual nature. And the purpose for which this armor must be put on is in order to enable one to stand firm. It says there, so that you will be able to stand firm, possessing the capability to stand firm. And to stand firm means to stand up against and can also be rendered resist. So again, this is a call to be immovable, to refuse to yield up ground to the enemy, to refuse to retreat, to refuse to shrink back from our position. And we're to stand firm, specifically, against the schemes of the devil. Where schemes refers to methods or strategies. And so Satan is portrayed as one who is actively strategizing against the people of God. And one of the chief ways he does that is through doctrinal distortions. In fact, the only other time this word is used in the New Testament is in Ephesians 4.14, which says this, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Same word. And though that attributes doctrinal distortions to the trickery of men, it is Satan working through them as they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Peter 4.1. And you can look at what we went through in the time leading up till now as definitely revolving around a doctrinal distortion. So our battle is clearly a spiritual battle of a spiritual nature. And Paul states this plainly when giving the reason that we must put on the full armor of God. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And there's an amazing contrast here. Because on the one hand, the word struggle pictures hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was a word that was originally used for wrestling. And so Paul pictures us in hand-to-hand -hand combat with Satan. And on the other, the spiritual powers we're up against are said to be in the heavenly places, describing something that's taking place on a cosmic level, both elevating the spiritual nature of this battle as well as the spiritual agents that we're up against. And this creates a bit of a tension because we saw earlier that Christ is where? Seated far above all rule and authority. 
where the exact same words for rule and authority are expressed here as rulers and powers. And we can even complicate that further because Ephesians 2.6 says that we've been seated with him in the heavenly places through union with Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority. And so how do we account for this? That we're struggling against the principalities and powers on the one hand, and yet Christ has already conquered them and we're seated with him. We do so by recognizing that though Satan is defeated, and though Christ has defeated him, and though we have conquered Satan through Christ, the full realization of that is yet to be realized. It has not yet come to fruition, and it will not come to fruition until the second coming of Christ. And until then, Satan and his minions are incredibly active. And to appreciate that, listen to the way the Bible describes Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air, who is currently at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. He is the God of this world and has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He is the ruler of this world, John 12.31, and the whole world lies in his power, 1 John 5.19. In fact, the world can be defined as the realm of fallen humanity organized in rebellion against God by Satan himself. At this present time, he is actively deceiving the nations, Revelation 20 and verse 3. He is described as one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He is both a murderer and the father of lies, John 8, 44. And he is the deceiver, 2 Corinthians eleven three, who disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Now, is Satan sovereign? No. Satan is entirely submitted to the sovereignty of God. Satan is God's devil. Satan does God's bidding. But nevertheless, Satan is a force to be reckoned with. And that is why it is critical to heed the instruction of this text. And so Paul reiterates the exhortation in verse 13, saying, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Paul is calling on us to be ready, to be prepared, to do all that is necessary to stand firm. And standing firm demands that we resist in the evil day. Where to resist is to resist power. And in this case, to resist demonic power. And the evil day is not just the day between the two comings of Christ. It is that, but it's not just that. The evil day refers to particularly evil days that arise in between those two comings. Times and seasons that are especially intense when the onslaught of the devil is heightened and increased. And I think we just experienced an evil day like that. And we may be on the heels of another one are on our way into another one. An especially intense time of evil. And one that was undeniably devised by the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, and the spiritual forces of wickedness. In fact, you would have to be a complete fool to conclude otherwise. This is where the church needs to understand the substance and scope of the spiritual war. This goes well beyond spiritual warfare on a personal level. This goes well beyond spiritual warfare in the realm of false religion. This is spiritual warfare on a cosmic level. To get the entire world to walk in lockstep is an incredible feat. And the church had a glorious opportunity to stand firm 
to refuse to yield up ground to the enemy, ground that rightfully belongs to Christ. But instead, she retreated. She put her lamp under a basket and removed herself from the vital means of grace. And all she had to do was what? Stand firm. Be the church. And had she been the church in this season, what an opportunity for the honor and glory of Christ. And we saw the honor and glory of Christ because there were lights that were shining brightly and the gospel went forth with power. But oh, what it would have looked like had the church universal, the true church of Christ stood tall, stood together and heralded the honor and glory of Christ. Now, let me say this. With respect to transforming the culture, you need to know this is what you're up against. The the battle to, to, to win the culture is a spiritual war. And you're going toe to toe with the rulers and powers and and the forces of wickedness in this world. And I would submit to you that there is only way to put a dent in that war, and it is through regeneration. The only way to put a dent in the culture that is so interconnected at this time through technology, for example, The only way is going to be to herald Jesus Christ, herald his death and resurrection. It's going to be through regeneration and the preaching of the gospel and and that which comes through the effectual call that we're going to see this thing turn around. Anything less than that will either end up right back where we are now. And even on the heels of that, if we don't have regeneration happening consecutively in the generations that follow, we're going to end up right back where we are. And so we're called to stand firm. And the prerequisite to standing firm is to put on the full armor of God. Can't stand firm without the full armor of God. Now third, the panoply of God. And this is the panoply to stand firm. The panoply to stand firm. And now we're gonna get into each piece of the armor. And there are six. And as Paul paints this picture, he's likely drawing from one of two places. One is from the book of Isaiah in the language that depicts both the Messiah and God, and the other is from the equipment of a Roman soldier. And as Paul blends these two together, he does so in a manner that reaffirms what we've just seen, that these items must be taken up if we are to stand firm. So one, the armor of truth. The armor of truth. Look at verse 14. It says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. This is now the third time Paul has exhorted us to stand firm. Only this time it's a command. And it's elevated by a climactic therefore. And so we're to stand firm. And we're to do so having previously girded our loins with truth. And a number of translations notice an allusion here to Isaiah 11.5, which says this, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. A passage that is intensely messianic, where faithfulness is nearly a synonym for truth. And yet commentators also note that the Roman soldier would gird his loins with a leather apron and would do so to protect his thighs for battle. Either way, truth is absolutely critical to standing firm. And the question is this, is this the objective truth of the word of God? Or is it truth in a more ethical sense? And let's just say it's both, because the two are inseparable. We're to be firmly rooted in the truth, and we're to be those whose lives are marked by truthfulness or faithfulness. 
And so we aren't just to know the truth, we're also to walk in the truth. And that has significance. Just think of the time that we've been in. That has significance for how we live in a world marked by lies. We must be incredibly well-versed in the truth. And we must walk in a manner that's consistent with the truth. We cannot live by lies. We must be a discerning people. And so when the world goes in any one direction, even when on the face of it, it might seem legit, we can't naively follow suit. We have to assess it in light of the spiritual war and in light of the truth. And I would just say this, I'm not the judge. Christ is the judge. He sits on the judgment seat. But when I survey the landscape of the church, she has both failed to know the truth and she has both failed to walk in a manner consistent with the truth. Fail on both fronts. Has not girded her loins with truth. And you must, if you're going to stand firm. Two, the armor of righteousness. The armor of righteousness, second half of verse 14. It says there, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate was a a plate of steel that guarded the, the vital organs of a soldier. And this breastplate is even referred to in Isaiah 59, 17 where it depicts Yahweh as having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And the question that comes to us at this juncture is what does the breastplate of righteousness refer to? Does it refer to positional righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, or does it refer to practical righteousness and our obedience? And the answer is yes. It refers to both, since again, the two are inseparable. And so to put on the breastplate of righteousness, one must be imputed with the righteousness of Christ, and then on the ground of that righteousness must be one who is committed to spirit-empowered obedience. The kind of obedience that is resolved to obey in the face of any and all opposition, regardless of the outcome or cause. And so standing firm in the context of spiritual warfare demands that you be committed to obedience, that you have been cultivating obedience, and it actually expresses itself in what? Obedience. The call to stand firm is a call to obedience. And just draw on the imagery of a soldier for a moment. This demands executing the orders of the commanding officer. Who's the commanding officer? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. We are soldiers for Christ, and we have a commanding officer, and he is the one that sends in the orders. And when the orders come, we don't get to modify the order. We don't get to tweak the order, adjust even the method. We have a responsibility to execute the order as given. And so when it comes to obedience, we don't get to pick the hills we die on. We don't get to decide when it's time to obey. We're called to obey. And as we obey, the hill picks us. Christ picks the hill. We just obey. We stand firm. And so this is calling for obedience, the cultivation of practical righteousness on the ground of the imputed righteousness of Christ. We need to follow through on the orders that come to us from the commanding officer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our job is to obey, to stand firm. Now three, the armor of the gospel. The armor of the gospel, look at verse 15. It says, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Look, if you're going to stand firm, you need stability. You need stability. 
and stability in the context of a, a soldier comes from his footwear, and here our stability comes from the gospel. Paul calls it the gospel of peace. Why does he do that? Because as we stand firm against the onslaught of the enemy, we must be absolutely certain of what? That we have peace with God. And it's through the gospel that we have peace with him. Ephesians 2, 17 and 18, referring to Christ, it says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. When you have peace with God, you have access to him through the Spirit. And that access to him is critical in the day of evil. When you are experiencing the onslaught of the enemy, you need to know with confidence that you have peace with God and can go directly to the throne of grace. And here's what's going to happen. As we stand firm in the stability of the gospel, the gospel of peace, and the onslaught comes, we're going to have glorious opportunities to proclaim the gospel. We are going to have wonderful opportunities to herald the lordship of Christ, to proclaim his death and resurrection, to call the world to repentance. And as we do that, it will go forth with power because it will have the credibility of a life that's willing to suffer for his sake. You're willing to lay down your life to declare the saving message of the gospel to the world. Then it goes forth with power. And we see it take root in the lives of people. And so to stand firm, we must be firmly rooted in the gospel. Firmly rooted in the gospel. Now for the armor of faith. The armor of faith, verse 16. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So what is the shield of faith? It's faith. Faith is the shield of faith. Faith functions as a shield and extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And the shield pictured here is not a small shield. It's a massive shield that the soldier could hide his entire body behind. He could crouch behind and receive complete protection. And when you take a stand for Christ... The enemy is going to fire you from every and any angle. Especially when it's a public stand. He'll fire you from the government. He'll fire you from the media, through your extended family, through your friends, through your coworkers, and he'll even attack you through the church. And so you need to have faith, the shield of faith, because that will give you courage to render all of that to no effect. With the shield of faith in hand, when you get that opposition, it will actually be validation. You will know that that opposition is validating that you are taking the exact stand you're supposed to be taking. And so when the war wages, you will need to believe on the promises of God to stand firm. The church needs to be a believing church that is believing on the truth of the word of God and, and, and holding the promises of God tightly and bringing them before the throne of grace. And then as the arrows come in, they will be extinguished. They will have no effect. Five, the armor of salvation. The armor of salvation. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, this helmet of salvation is referred to in Isaiah 59, 17. And there, Yahweh is the one who's wearing the helmet of salvation. And he's coming in judgment to deliver his people. So there's a relationship, no doubt, between God wearing the helmet of salvation and coming in deliverance. 
Because that gives us what? That gives us hope. That gives us confidence that we can stand firm. And Paul actually says this in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. He says, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. To stand firm, you must have a fixed hope. In fact, listen to 1 Peter 1.13, therefore prepare your minds for action, keeping sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a glorious grace on the horizon. Christ is going to bring that grace and you are to fix your hope on that. And you fix your hope on that as you stand firm, regardless of what comes at you. And you know that even if you should give up your life, it doesn't make a difference because there is grace on the horizon. There is deliverance coming. Justice will be served. And really, as you fix your hope on this grace or on this hope, on this this coming realization of salvation, you will be able to kiss this world goodbye. And when you are walking a road marked by obedience, and that leads you into conflict and suffering, and you are looking at all the things you hold dear in this life, and you realize you may have to give them up. With this hope, you'll be able to kiss it all goodbye. Hold it before God with open hands, and let it be whatever he wills. Your hope must be fixed on the salvation that is to come. It's a helmet that guards the head. And then sixth, the armor of God's word. The armor of God's word. Second half of verse 17, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We've got to take up the sword of the spirit. The word for word here is not logos. It's rhema. And that usually emphasizes the word spoken, the spoken word. And so the church is to speak the word. It's to speak the word to the war, to the issue. Think of Jesus and his temptation. He modeled this wonderfully. As Satan tempted him, he quoted scripture in response. The church needs to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and proclaim it. Declare it. Preach it. And that means the word of God has to destroy ideological fortresses that are being raised up against the knowledge of God. The culture, the world, Satan is constantly bringing forward ideological fortresses that are being raised up against the true knowledge of God, and the church has the responsibility of taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and preaching against all of that, exposing its error, bringing those ideological fortresses down. In fact, listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is where the pulpit's got to come back and preach the word of God to the issues of the day and go to war with the ideologies of the day, regardless of whatever it is. All of it needs to be confronted with the word of God. And the word of God needs to be preached with passion and clarity to bring down these ideological fortresses. Otherwise, what happens? The church becomes more and more like the world. And those ideological fortresses come in and begin to shape our minds and our thinking. No, the church needs to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and proclaim it with all authority. 
So this is a call to stand firm. Paul is calling us to stand firm. And when you think about what is happening in our day, with a totalitarian view of government, where the government wants to swallow up all of the other spheres of authority, it's got to be the church that stands up and says no. It's got to be the church that stands firm, that does not yield any ground to the enemy, that holds the line that Christ has bought with his own blood, that refuses to give up that territory. And as she does, the glory of Christ will have wonderful occasions to go on display. But we can't be hiding the light under a basket. We need to stand firm. We need the power to stand firm, and that power is Christ's. We need to put on the full armor of God to stand firm. And that means being committed to the truth, committed to obedience, committed to the gospel. We need the hope of salvation, the shield of, the, the, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, all of it to stand, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And our goal is to be faithful all the way to the end. Even if it means losing our own lives, we want to go down giving honor and glory to Christ. Letting him have the glory that he deserves for the price that he paid. So may the church stand firm. May this mark a, a new day that we can move forward together, standing firm against the onslaught of the enemy, giving great honor and glory to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be here. We are grateful for the stands that are represented in this room. And Father, we want to stand firm. Regardless of whatever is coming, we want to stand firm. And we want the stand that is represented here to spread like wildfire throughout this nation and this, this whole world, Father. And so we pray that you would do that, that you would grant repentance where there needs to be repentance, that the church would lay aside the sin that so easily entangles her, and even the encumbrance that is weighing her down, and that she would run the race set before her with endurance. Father, we know that you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so do that, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.